Do people resonate with the new economy? Do people resonate better with people's economy? Economic democracy, should we be treating these actions separately? Should we be aligning under a movement? This program is made possible by the members and donors to the show. To support the work we do, get commercial-free versions of every episode, and members-only bonus content, please visit the Contribute tab at bestoftheleft.com. Now, welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from the Ralph Nader Radio Hour, the Laura Flanders Show, the David Pakman Show, the Black Agenda Report, the Next System Project, Economic Update with Professor Richard Wolf, and Big Think. We've been talking with Professor Emeritus of Sociology, Arlie Russell, Hochschild, author of the very, very in-depth insight into uh, area of rural and industrial America in uh, Lake Charles, Louisiana. She calls the book Strangers in Their Own Land because that's how they feel. They feel they're abandoned. Uh, just yeah. to generalize a bit and bring it up to date, Professor Hochschild, would you say that the Trump victory was very much made possible. He lost a popular vote, by the way, and just won the Electoral College. The Trump victory was a victory driven by white America, rooted in three dimensions, race, culture, and economics. Yes, but you know, I think the main point I draw away from this is that the Democratic Party didn't have much to offer people like that. I think they didn't see themselves reflected in the conversation. They didn't see real solutions to the problems they faced being offered. And they felt a kind of insulted sometimes. Oh, you rednecks. They, they scanned the liberal comedian's language for, for put-downs of themselves. So I felt, I came away feeling, look, there's a tremendous opportunity but that the the liberal left has to demarginalize itself, get out there, respectfully get to know people, and find common ground. That's exactly the introspection the Democratic Party should be having. They yeah. did turn their back on these people. Yeah. 30 million workers today are making less in inflation-adjusted dollars than workers made in 1968, even though worker productivity is doubled. And that includes a lot of people that you interviewed and they're unemployed or underemployed, do you think that the Democratic Party is able to transcend its limitations and stop losing our country to the worst, most ruthless Republican Party in 164 years of its existence? You can imagine what Franklin Delano Roosevelt would have done to today's Republican Party. Yeah, yeah. I think we have a little eating of humble pie to do. And to back up and say, wait a minute, something was not on the table for these people, and we need to really look at what could be offered. When I asked people who your best governor ever was, you know, it wasn't a governor general. It was a socialist government who wanted chicken in every pot, every white pot, every black pot, and Huey Long. So... And I asked the same guy, Mike, well, hey, could Huey Long be, be elected in Louisiana today? Oh, not today. But he's uh, he's been our best governor. Isn't Something that interesting? Learn from that. 
Yeah, just think, the populist progressive movement started in East Texas in 1886-87, swept uh, throughout much of the country, elected governors, senators, almost a, a president. The biggest verdicts and the litigation of asbestos contamination that's killed hundreds of thousands of workers and the tobacco litigation uh, was in the South. You know, you have a remarkable contrast here. Do they attribute a lot of their views being reinforced by the domination of daily talk radio and Fox TV? Does it, they mention that in your interviews of them? Oh, they don't mention it, but what they say often comes directly from Fox News. Because as part of this research, I was listening to Fox News, too, and I could hear them uh, you know, repeat things that they had heard on yesterday's news. And they spoke very lovingly of Rush Limbaugh and so on. So they, yeah, are clearly oriented. There's a self-affirmation effect, and that happens for both left and right, where you go to a source of news that reaffirms your deep story. In other words, well, I think what, we've got what, our deep story, too, and that yeah, we what, need what to a, really understand a, that. Uh, Professor Hochschild, what is the view toward unions? You know, the uh, Atomic Energy and Chemical Workers Union was once one of the most progressive unions in the country, and they they were the ones working in these petrochemical plants and oil industry. What's the, Do they think that union leaders have betrayed them? They do. They do. And they don't see what they're getting for their dues. Now, a lot of the people who were the pipe fitters were part of unions, but very ambivalent. They didn't feel these were champions of their interests. Do they have any sense of mobilizing the way the farmers did in 1886, 87? They, they signed up 200,000 farmers in eight months in East Texas, dollar a day dues equivalent to $50. They really had fight in them to go after the railroads and the banks that were gouging them, and they wanted regulation, and they didn't have, uh, you know, motor vehicles, telephones, emails. Is there any fight in these people in terms of mobilizing? Oh, there's a lot of fight, but it's all gone into support of Donald J. Trump. They feel that he is offering them a form of almost secular rapture, a rise up out of their dilemma. And they see it as an answer to the deep story. But if you talk to them about their grievances and other possible answers, they're open. They have an open ear. It's not that they love him. It's that nobody else came by. In terms of understanding why people voted for Trump, what were their motivations, um, it's really important for us to be careful not to just dismiss all Trump voters as bigots, misogynists, white nationalists. It's more complicated than that. 
um, there were a substantial number of people who are clearly motivated by Trump's bigotry. And there were others, maybe a very substantial number, who voted for him despite those things, not particularly because of them. And we need to be mindful of that and think about how we actually compete for those people. We must compete for those people. Again, this was an opportunity for many to vote for um, change in our honestly rigged um, political and economic system. And it wasn't on offer anywhere else. Um, and so the first thing is to lead with compassion. No one, even the folks who voted for Trump, no one deserves what's coming. And so thinking, looking forward, we have to figure out what are the things that progressives can bring um, that can draw folks away from, from the Trump coalition and can reveal the contradictions right, of, of what Trump promises. Um, because Trump sort of promises um, that bigotry can bring prosperity. And it's just not proven to be the case. It's not only morally abhorrent, but it's factually inaccurate. For the past 30 years, the right wing has used racist dog whistle politics to convince people, especially white people, to vote to dismantle the exact things that they most depend on for health, safety, and security. Have used racism to convince people to starve public education, to starve the social safety net. Um, and so, in fact, racism is economic suicide for most white people. Uh, and yet, it's an effective um, uh, mechanism of power building. So what do the progressive forces do? I think that the first thing is um, to realize that we can't just be on defense. And understandably, a lot of the conversation has gone to how do we keep people safe? And in fact, the dogs are out. And there are many, many vulnerable communities um, uh, that need protection and they, and they need support across the board. At the same time, we have to bring our vision. We have to confront Trump and what Trumpism represents with an alternative progressive vision that addresses people's core concerns. One of the ways I think we need to bring that uh, uh, more effectively than we were able to in this past period is that we don't have a very compelling um, frame or conversation uh, about race and the economy. And one of the most effective things in Trump's campaign was his ability to link those two things. And the basic narrative that was brought is this, that elites, liberal elites, are taking your stuff, you being deserving racialized white makers, and giving it to undeserving takers, dark-skinned, brown-skinned, foreign, uh, non-Christian, dangerous folks. Um, and mobilize people to rebel against that, uh, uh, that arrangement. Um, and on the left, among progressives, there's a very powerful movement for economic justice, but it doesn't really talk about race except it's almost an afterthought. Race is a question of disproportionate harm. And we have a very powerful, insurging, and vital racial justice movement in this country whose economic justice agenda is not adequately understood and is being powerfully developed in this moment through the movement for black lives. What's needed, among other things, is in this moment is a much better synthetic expression of our politics around race, class, and especially in light of this election, gender. Um, and gender justice and a counterpoint to the kind of misogyny we saw mobilized in this campaign. Those are lessons we need to learn and to bring in a powerful way. 
racial justice needs to be and is a majoritarian issue. It's a question for all Americans, and we need to frame our agenda in those broadest terms without watering down our commitments, core commitments to racial justice, economic justice, and gender justice, and so forth. I think there's tremendous capacity to do that. If we're going to be competitive uh, with, with very well-messaged, with a very well-delivered uh, white nationalist and white-ring populist rhetoric, we need a, a, a much more consolidated, coherent game that unifies the different major wings of the progressive movement. Another issue I want to mention today, I don't know if people get sick of hearing about this issue, but I think it's absolutely fascinating, and this is related to technological unemployment. We have this general sense that many jobs are going to be replaced by machines in the next 15 or 20 years. There's a new report now from Forrester, which does research into this type of, of economic change that we're expecting, and it's much more specific. Within five years, the report says robots and so-called intelligent agents, some call it artificial intelligence, call it what you want, are going to replace positions in customer service, trucking and taxi services, which will total six percent of jobs, according to this Forrester report. This will be uh, really in full force by the year 2021. Uh, this is basically what we've been saying for a long time, right? Customer service. Increasingly, we've, we've reported on these sort of uh, how would you describe them? I guess chat bots, for lack of a better term, which can handle basic customer service requests, tracking information, order status, refund requests. A lot of these things can really be handled pretty well by a chat bot that is going to replace jobs. There's no doubt about it. Now, you may be thinking, well, a lot of those jobs have already been outsourced to Asia. Yeah. So some of the jobs that are destroyed will not be in the U.S. They've already left the U.S., but they'll definitely not be coming back. Transportation and taxi services. Well, yeah, we've been talking about this for years and we now know in uh, Pittsburgh, Uber has now rolled out self-driving taxis. You still need to have a driver able to take over control if the self uh, the autopilot were to fail. But that is already happening is also happening in uh, was it Singapore or the Philippines. We had a story about that the trucking industry. We already see in Canada that autonomous trucks are being used within mines to transport ore within the mine. And we see also the driverless truck corridor that is a sort of test corridor uh, in the mountain zone area. I think it's in Nevada, sort of north south around there. Um, and uh, that that is already happening. So no surprise here, right? I mean, big picture, we've seen reports that say 40 to 45 percent of current human done jobs could be replaced by technology. The Forrester report very, very specifically saying in the next five years, it's going to be about six percent of jobs, primarily in customer service, trucking and taxi services. You're probably sick of hearing me say this by now. The only way that we're going to move past this 
in a positive manner as humans is if we rethink the relationship to work. Do we really need to be working 45 hours a week in order to accomplish what is necessary to participate in society in a meaningful way? Or can we look at basic income? Can we get beyond scarcity when it comes to food? Well, we could if we had better food distribution and the political will to make sure nobody goes hungry. There's really no reason people should have to work for food once we start losing jobs to robots and AI if we had the political will to solve that problem. So uh, every single report, the interesting thing is there's no reports left that say, hey, you know what? Automation won't be a problem. Don't worry about it. Everything's going to be fine. You drive a truck, you're not going to lose your job. You uh, operate a taxi, you're going to be absolutely fine. There is no report now that is saying that. We talk about with climate change, well, it's like 99 to 1 or 99.7% to 0.3% that humans are impacting the climate. I've not seen a single report arguing that automation is not going to be an issue for jobs in the United States or on the in, in the world. That should really tell us something because usually you have some devil's advocates. It was automation. I know. That was what was making the factory go. It was IBM. It was Univac. It was all those gears going clickety clack. Dear, I thought automation was keen till you were replaced by a 10 ton machine. It was that computer that tore us apart. Dear, automation broke my heart. I'm hearing this a lot now that what happened to Hillary Clinton shows that we should avoid and reject anything and everything related to identity of race, of gender, of ethnicity, and sexual orientation. Well, I, I would be very careful about that. Bernie Sanders has kind of said sort of things like that that sort of suggest I'd be very careful about rejecting identity politics briefly. There's a debased and bourgeois and corporate neoliberal version of identity politics and there's a left progressive socialist version of dealing with identity right and the left has always worked with the specific experience and oppression of specific groups who yes are divided and there's a whole divide and rule system under capitalism but it isn't about squelching the specificity of black oppression or the specificity of immigrant oppression or the specificity of latino aggression or gay oppression or transgendered oppression you need to talk about what's specific and real about what's happening to subgroups so they can see their experience and identity on the solidaristic banner. I say work with identity in a way that gets you to class. Working class zero is something to be. Working class zero is something to be. They hurt you at home and they hit you at school. Clever and despise a fool. 
That was Anthony Flaccavento, founder of Appalachian Sustainable Development and author most recently of Building a Healthy Economy from the Bottom Up. Give us some examples of the work that you do and how you do it. Uh, because I think there are people after this election who look around and say, what country am I in? Right. How do I work with these people? Sure. Um, sure. Some people said some really terrible things about each other. Oh, yeah. O- yeah. On lines of race and gender and all the rest. Oh, yeah. And there's no denying that. And and the argument that I've been trying to make around the, the role that rural communities and working people could play doesn't in any way deny sort of the the horror of so much of what happened in this campaign and and that has been building for eight years actually that that's true we have to combat that so some of the examples some are direct from my own experience and then some from the folks that I've uh, gotten to know as colleagues around the country so in our own experience with just tobacco briefly what we had was a situation where an agricultural program that actually worked for small farmers, sort of the the archetypal family farmer, was producing a product that wasn't good yeah. for people or the land. It was very chemically intensive. As tobacco was starting to decline, we started working with tobacco farmers and trying to emulate the best element of the tobacco program. And, and fundamentally, it was that they had a solid market. And second was that there was a whole infrastructure, a culture built around the rhythms of tobacco. So we tried to create a program where the same farmers were producing organic produce, but building a solid market and then investing in that infrastructure. That's one uh, of countless examples of meeting people where they are, but not just accepting the status quo, but trying to move things in a better direction from a sustainability point of view. And politically, how do you do that in an environment where some of those people you might be working with have espoused really horrible racist views or misogyny? This situation that people find themselves in now it's very confusing, I think, for a lot. Like, how do we, who do we connect with and where do we draw a line? I'll, I'll tell you a story from uh, when I was running for Congress in 2012, and I earned the support of the United Mine Workers, and that was very, very important in our district. Uh, but the, the UMWA, they knew where I stood on labor. They knew I had fought for them during the strike and, and the black lung issues, but they were nervous about me as an environmentalist. But I, I won them over by just talking very directly. Um, about two months into the campaign, the president announced his position on gay marriage. And I was coming that very day to a rally in Russell County, Virginia. And one of the old-time retired miners came up to me in the parking lot, a um, big supporter of mine, and he said, what do you think about that bombshell Obama's dropped on us? And I thought he was talking about the EPA, something, you know, something with the EPA. And uh, I, I looked at him, he said, you know, the gay marriage thing. So we had this conversation as we were walking through the parking lot to my little presentation. And ultimately, I said to him, you know, I, I the way I see it, because he was quoting the Bible, I said, the way I see it, the Bible tells us that we're supposed to love people, especially the people that are hardest to love. And I, I mean, that might be hard to do, but I think that's something. And he said, 
Well, yeah, I guess you're right about it. I suppose they're just born that way anyway. So it was like this little moment. I was off script with my pro-labor message that he loved into much murkier territory. So he has to love me for being hard to love because I'm gay. I have to love him because he's a white supremacist. (laughs) I don't know, but maybe... Maybe over time, because this doesn't happen, as you well know, in a year or two, maybe over time, some of those views about women, about gays, about minorities change as people feel also valued themselves, as people's needs don't, as they don't feel that their needs, their issues are just fundamentally discarded by both parties, by big business, by the government. And and perhaps as people feel some self-confidence, some control over their livelihoods, these other issues become things that they fundamentally yeah. are more tolerant about. I mean, the, the, the media description of the community you live in is very inaccurate, my experience yeah, from yeah. being there. For yeah. one thing, it is not purely a white zone. No. It is not a zone where only men work. And any kind of economic justice is going to have to be racially integrated and women-centered, because that's who's doing the large part of the work. Particularly the alternative economic development work is being led by women, the grass, the really the grassroots economic development and environmental organizing as well. If you're really talking about Appalachian alternatives, which you're talking about, and if the history of the United States is kind of wither Appalachia, there there goes the nation— How do you think an era of Trump economics will affect you? And secondly, how can we combat that in this era where politically you kind of have very few tools at your disposal? An awful lot of people in Kentucky, West Virginia, Virginia, Tennessee, and other rural areas are talking about economic transition now. And that's big in and of itself, because for generations you couldn't talk about anything other than coal. Transition implies something after coal. That's a step in the right direction. Uh, I tend to call that bottom-up economics, yeah. and there is definitely momentum building for it. The, the terrible irony of Trump being supported in so many of these communities is that he represents precisely the opposite, right. an, an utter return to trickle-down, the worst excesses of trickle-down economics. And so there's a pretty solid chance that he'll undo the little incremental progress that was happening, like Obama's power and Power Plus plan, which are providing investment into real economic alternatives, very, very yeah. solid. Ones. So somehow or other, I think our message during the Trump years has to stay very much focused on what's wrong with trickle-down globalization, with wealth concentration, and keep working probably with less resources on building these bottom-up alternatives, not just in Appalachia, but all over. Well, I know just what you think of me, drowning in your economy. I know just what you think of me, I feel it trickle down. I know just what you think of me. In our economy today, we generally use what's called a market to connect people who need goods and services with the companies who produce them. We give companies money and get stuff back in return. Markets can often behave badly in ways that are destructive and wrong, but they do also provide a reasonably efficient and decentralized way of allocating productive capacity to match demand. Can we continue markets in a truly democratic economic system? David Schweikart thinks so, but only if we make some big changes. 
Corporations today are not democratically organized. The workers inside them have very little say in how things are run. It's the people who own the companies that are in charge. Not only do they get to decide how things are run, but they also get to extract the profit made, which increases the resources under their control. So that's what our economy looks like today. A market system with lots of privately owned, non-democratic companies. But where does the capital for all this come from? How do companies start and grow? In our current system, capital is undemocratic too, driven by private interest pursuing private profit. This means that private investment, a market in capital, determines who gets the resources they need to build or expand their company. And these decisions get made based on who the owners of capital think will be able to generate more profits from their company. It's a feedback loop and a bad one. What's most profitable has the most ability to grow under the current system, even if it conflicts with community needs or ecological demands. So what does David Schweikart think a democratic economy looks like? His idea is that we should keep markets, but get the economy itself under democratic control. The first step is to get rid of those private owners who control the individual companies. Instead, companies should be democratically managed by the people who work in them as cooperative enterprises. We need to bring democracy into the workplace. Capital also needs to be democratized, and that means making it publicly controlled. In Schweikart's system, the cooperative companies pay a tax, kind of like a rental charge, for using public money to grow their businesses. Instead of flowing back to corporate finance, profits flow back to the government and the people. And the government, democratically controlled by all the people who make up the economy, gets to decide which companies get more capital. Public investments can be made based on what creates more jobs, what pollutes less, and what meets the needs of the people, not profit. With democracy in the workplace and in the way capital is invested, David Schweikart thinks we can have economic democracy, a system that still uses markets to handle the problems of coordinating supply and demand, but which is run by and for the people. For more information on this and other models for changing the system, visit thenextsystem.org. Today's episode is sponsored by Blue Apron, who delivers fresh, perfectly portioned ingredients for great meals right to your door for less than the cost of eating out. Now, you're probably already aware of all the benefits of cooking and eating together as a family, and it follows that Blue Apron makes it easier to do just that more often, but there's another first-world problem that they're helping to solve. Decision fatigue. Amanda and I eat together most nights, but those meals always start with an agonizing discussion about what to make. Oh, God, do we have to decide again? You know, we're exhausted from making decisions all day, and didn't we already decide what to eat last night? We have to do this again? But not when Blue Apron is in the house. Then we just pull out the ingredients for za'atar roasted broccoli salad, or the fresh fettuccine with beets, goat cheese, and poppy seeds, or some other similarly delicious concoction, follow the directions where the only decision to make is how much salt and pepper to add to taste, 
and then sit down to a gourmet meal with a sense of accomplishment. So check out this week's menu and get your first three meals for free with free shipping by going to blueapron.com slash best. You will love how good it feels and tastes to create incredible home-cooked meals with Blue Apron, so don't wait. That's blueapron.com slash best. Blue Apron, a better way to cook. Many of you have been interested in worker co-ops. It's becoming a more and more important topic in the United States, or what we prefer to call worker self-directed enterprises. Enterprises that are not capitalist. They don't allow a small group of people, major shareholders, boards of directors, uh, to control a big enterprise, a big factory, a store, an office, where hundreds or thousands or tens of thousands of people are working. That's fundamentally undemocratic, and the worker co-op rejects that. And the whole point of worker co-ops is to say that if you believe in democracy, if that's what you think is good in a community, then it applies as much to the community at work as it does to the community in the neighborhood where you live. Communities are communities, and democracy, if you believe in it, is applicable at the workplace just as much as at the residence place. Well, some of you have been worried about some dimensions of this argument. For example, is it an attack on small business? Not at all. Small businesses have nothing to do with this. A small business can be organized in a capitalist way with a, a single owner, for example, who makes all the decisions, or a group of people getting together and running the enterprise democratically. In a fair, open, competitive society, if I dare say the word, we would have both kinds. Small businesses that were capitalistically organized and small businesses that were organized as worker co-ops. We would have the same with medium-sized businesses and with big businesses. And we would have both kinds. We would have a capitalist sector and let's call it a worker cooperative sector. And that would be Wonderful. Why? Because it would give the American people freedom of choice. They could choose which of these two to buy products from that they consumed, goods and services. They could likewise choose between them in terms of where they would prefer to work. Would you rather work in a top-down, hierarchical capitalist enterprise, or would you prefer to work in a collectively, democratically organized enterprise? And then let's let the economy go in whichever direction the mass, the majority of people would prefer to see it go. This is the sort of freedom of choice we say we favor in the United States. But the only way to give the American people such a freedom of choice is to have a cooperative sector of the economy in place. We don't have that now. That is, we have 8 million laws, customs, rules of governing bank credit and government purchases. All are in place to support, to favor, to subsidize, and to give all kinds of breaks to capitalist enterprises. All I'm really arguing is, if you're going to do that for capitalist enterprises, and if you believe in freedom of choice, then you ought to be doing the same for the alternative to a capitalist top-down enterprise, and that has been, and that is, 
a cooperative worker democratic enterprise, one in which workers democratically govern themselves, just as they do as residents of a town or a city or a state or a nation. Wow, what an idea that it ought to be policy to develop and to do it quickly a worker co-op sector in the United States, a segment present everywhere to let everyone see and choose between these alternatives. There ought to be a political movement advocating that. There ought to be a political party advocating that. And you know what? In my remaining two minutes today, I'm going to tell you that there is one. It's really interesting. It isn't in the United States. It's in Great Britain. That's right. The British Labour Party has taken the lead and begun to advocate in a firm way the development with government support of a large growing worker co-op sector in the British economy. The Labour Party promises, if it wins the next election, to pass a bill through the House of Commons and the British Parliament. The bill would have the following property. Anyone can start a small business the way they always have. Everyone can stay with that business as it grows in a capitalist way, as they always have. But here's a new rule. When it comes to that business selling itself to a bigger company, or deciding to become a stock company by issuing shares and becoming listed on the, the London Stock Exchange, at that moment, the law will require every company simply to do the following, to give a right of first refusal. You know what that means? It means going to its own workers and saying, before we sell this company to somebody else, and before we send this company onto the stock market where it can be owned by everybody, who has money to buy shares, we are going to give you, our workers, the right of first refusal. If you want to buy this company and run it as a worker democratic enterprise, you will have first bids to do it. If you can't, if you don't want to, the company's free to look for buyers elsewhere. But we, the government, believe you should have that right because that's a way to build a worker co-op sector in our economy. Ah, and the government will help provide the financing to workers to make such an arrangement, to buy the company from their employer. And the government will provide technical assistance and low-interest loans. The government will do for these worker co-ops what it has always done for capitalist enterprises. And that will build up the sector, and that will give people a freedom of choice about their economic future that workers had never dreamed of before but that now could become the most profound challenge to capitalism in centuries.
If you look at the Nordic countries, Finland, Sweden, Norway, Denmark, Iceland, you have five countries. They are all different in many ways, but there is one very strong common factor. These five countries all have very competitive free market economies. And in every international ranking, they are among the top nations in that respect. And their economic success in recent decades demonstrates that the Nordic free market economies perform extraordinarily well. They have produced global companies uh, that uh, dominate many other parts of the world. But at the same time, these five Nordic countries have developed a social welfare system where everybody, irrespective of their income and class, gets the same right to education, to health care, and to equal treatment in any economic way. This coexistence of a social welfare society where the right to education and health care is equally distributed throughout society is one of the pillar of our economic and business success. So you cannot find any business organization in any of the Nordic countries which is advocating that we should decrease this social welfare system. On the contrary, the prominent business leaders of our countries realize that the evolution of this social welfare system in terms of education and healthcare is one of the major reasons why the Nordic businesses have been globally so successful and why, why our market economies have grown so aggressively. Why? Because if we have an established system that takes care of the sick when they need it and allow every kid to be educated to the fullness of its potential, the business leaders can con concentrate on the business. They don't have to worry about uh, the health insurance and everything that goes with this complicated system where uh, you don't have a universal educational or health rights. So the Nordic formula, not just the Icelandic one, but also from Norway, Sweden, Finland, and Denmark, has created what the Economist, the preeminent weekly economic uh, newspaper in the world, deemed a few months ago perhaps the most successful economic model in the last few decades. So when my American friends uh, call it socialism in a very negative term, I ask them, look at our business record, look at our economic record, look at the growth rate, look at the prosperity, look at the global companies, look at the innovation that takes place within this framework. And if you do that, the evidence is absolutely clear. To provide everybody with the right to education and healthcare is a formula for economic and business success. Let me conclude today's program by talking about something many of you have asked me to talk about, 
which is developing an alternative economic system, one that wouldn't work the way we document every week this capitalist system does. What's the next system? Where can we go? What alternative can we pursue? And as many of you know that listen, I am an advocate of an alternative system that we ought to try, that we ought to experiment with, and that we ought to discuss in a comparison with the capitalism we have. And the system I'm talking about is worker co-ops, a way of arranging the organization of stores, factories, and offices, for-profit, not-for-profit, doesn't matter, to operate in a different way and thereby to change our society. A worker co-op is a simple idea. It's a thousand years old. Human beings who work in an office, a factory, or a store are a community, and they're to run their community democratically. One person, one vote. What happens in the enterprise is decided by a majority of vote of everybody who's involved there, together with the surrounding communities in a co-respective sharing of decision-making. Some of you wonder, well, how could that be done? Well, you know, the answer to that question is to remind you how capitalism got going. Once upon a time, for a thousand years in Europe, there was no capitalism. The system was feudal. You had landlords, you had serfs. There was no individual hiring people. There were no people who hired themselves out. If you were a serf, you were born on a piece of land. You spent your life working on that piece of land. You died there. Your children stayed there, etc. You were uh, supposed to be loyal to the lord of the village in which you lived. Nobody hired people for a wage. Nobody got paid a money wage. None of that. So we know that capitalism, the system we now take for granted and live with, had to emerge from a system very different from it. How did the early capitalist enterprises get going? How did somebody come into possession of money and find somebody else who had nothing and was willing to work for that first person to get some wage paid to him so he could live, so that the person who hired him had some reason to do that. How did that all get worked out? Well, here's the answer. Individuals who didn't find a place in European feudalism, they were neither lords nor they were serfs. They had to find a way to live. Who were some of these people? Well, if I had time, I'd give you the whole history. It's very interesting. Some of these people were folks who weren't Christian. Europe at that time was mostly Roman Catholic, the dominant religion for most of the feudal period until uh, the 15th and 16th centuries. And in this Roman Catholic Christian Europe, you could be a serf or a lord if you were a Christian, but if you weren't a Christian, neither of those positions was available to you. Suppose you were a Muslim. Suppose you were a person without any religious affiliation, an atheist. Suppose you were a Jew. Suppose you were one of those tribal groupings, gypsies and others, that were always around in Europe. You had to find another way to live. You weren't a lord. You weren't a serf. Well, what many of them did is become peddlers. Find something in one area that's relatively cheap, fill your bag with it, walk 50 miles 
to where it wasn't cheap, where it was scarce, and sell it for more than you got it. What we nowadays call merchants, people who live by buying at one price and selling at a higher price. You could accumulate some money that way. You could survive. There were all kinds of other ways people survived. Well, that was part of the story. Here's another part of the story. What do you do if you're a serf and you have some land in a village and you deliver part of your produce to the Lord, that was called a rent, and part of the time you live off of the produce of your own peace that you raise with your family? Well, suppose you have one son and that's all, and he inherits your little piece and so it continues. End of story. Suppose you have two sons. Women were not allowed to inherit. So they're out of the picture, no matter what you had. They went off and got married. But your second son had a really big problem. Because feudalism was organized so that the land of the adult, when the adult gets too old or dies, passes to the first, the oldest son. The second son has no place to go. The second son is now desperate. He has to leave. He's not entitled to the land. He's therefore not a serf. And he's not a lord. He's just the second or third or fourth son. He can go and find one of those merchants and they can cut a deal with each other. I'll work for you, says the second or third or fourth son. I'll work for you. You give me enough money to live and you can have what I produce for you. It's yours. And the merchant, the guy with the money who's been peddling, says, wait a minute. Instead of buying stuff at a price and selling it at a higher price, I can hire these desperate second and third sons, set up a little workshop here in the corner, and produce the stuff and sell it, and I'll make more money that way. That's the beginning of capitalism. Well, how does other money get brought into it? Hundreds of ways. A landlord, seeing this begin to develop, can say, okay, I'll give you some money, Mr capitalist. You got to give me a bunch back, but you can take the rest and make even more money by hiring these desperate people coming off the countryside. In other words, capitalists had to find ways, hook or crook, this way, that, to, to assemble the money to build the capitalist system. Along the way, as they became more numerous, they began to look to the governments in their societies for help. And the governments were often persuaded, sometimes with violence, sometimes without, to help. So capitalists got a good deal. Capitalists got a subsidy. Capitalists got some help. Capitalists got a canal built where they could use the ships to bring their inputs in and to sell their output. They became the system that slowly challenged and eventually overthrew the old feudal system. That's how it worked. For a long time, you had feudal and capitalist side by side, working together, buying and selling goods from one another as the system progressed. Why am I telling you all this? Because basically a parallel story is now unfolding and needs our help, namely the emergence of worker co-ops as an alternative sector of the current economy, a non-capitalist sector a place where decisions are made democratically by everybody, and therefore the decisions are radically different. 
A capitalist has reason to shut the factory here and go a thousand miles away for cheap labor. But a factory run by the workers inside it would never do that. They wouldn't self-destruct like that, would they? They would maintain their jobs. They wouldn't be applying for cheap visas for low-wage workers. They wouldn't be doing a lot of the things we see going on around us. And how would they accumulate money? Well, before I give you some of the ways, let me develop a basic principle. There is every right for worker co-ops to demand of the American government, or for that matter, any government, a level playing field with their capitalist competitors. For hundreds of years, governments have been subsidizing buying from, building roads to and from, developing the curriculum in schools for the workers of capitalist enterprises. It's long overdue for the government to do the same for the alternative worker co-op so that the people can see how these two systems work, just like people at the end of feudalism could compare the feudalism they'd known for a thousand years with the new capitalism emerging within those societies. We ought to have the same freedom of choice ability to observe two systems that work very differently so we can decide which ones we want in what proportion in our society. There should be no hesitation. There's nothing false or special about worker co-ops wanting government subsidies, money from the government to help these worker co-ops get going, orders from the government so these worker co-ops can sell their products to a reliable buyer. Curriculum teaching young people how to work in a cooperative way, in a democratic way, in an enterprise. Schools with different curriculum, different kinds of emphasis. And where would the money come from? The government can provide a lot of it, but not just the government. Suppose there are churches that see the value to their commitment religiously to having democratic workplaces. The churches can raise the money. The Protestant church raised a good bit of money for early capitalists because the feudals were tied more to the Roman Catholic church. There'd be nothing wrong with progressive churches becoming part of such a movement here in the United States right now. Labor unions could begin to provide money to build such enterprises for their own members. The United Steelworkers in the United States is beginning to move in that direction. Laws should be passed to make it easier for banks to make loans for worker co-ops to get going. Workers themselves can pool their money and ought to be given tax advantages, just like capitalist enterprises get, for doing so. There are hundreds of ways that worker co-ops can and will find ways to raise capital. Are there difficulties along the way? For sure as there were for the capitalists who had to do the same thing to raise money. They solved the problem, so can we. The question is, do we have the political and ideological commitment to build this kind of alternative sector when we know that the capitalist system isn't working for most of us?
You've reached the activism portion of today's show. Now that you're informed and maybe even a little inspired, here's what you can do about it. Today's activism, join or start a local democracy at work action group. We've talked about these groups before, but not in a little while, so it's time for a refresher. We've been talking today about a new vision for our economic future, and we've even heard some policy proposals to help make this vision a reality, but we still need more than that. We need people like you to get organized and make it happen. Democracy at Work is the advocacy organization founded by Richard Wolff, the economist and host of Economic Update. It encourages people across the country to start and get involved in Democracy at Work action groups right in their communities. Democracy at Work action groups are built on the belief that everyday community leaders can influence policy, politics, and culture through action and advocacy on the local and national level. For instance, you could use your group to get in touch with local politicians and propose co-op-friendly policies like the one we heard about today from the Labour Party in the UK, just a simple proposal to give workers the right of first refusal to purchase a business before it's sold or goes public. To find an action group in your area, visit democracyatwork.info backslash groups to view the map of existing action groups across the country and the group's contact information. If you don't see one near you and you'd like to start a group, you can send an email to Democracy at Work's group organizer to betsy at democracyatwork.info. The segment notes include all of the links to this information as well as additional resources, and as always, this and every activism segment we produce is archived and organized under the Activism tab at bestoftheleft.com. So if creating a new economic system that works for everyone is important to you, then be sure to hit the share buttons to spread the word about joining Democracy at Work action groups via social media so that others in your network can get involved too. Someone else has been calling the shots for far too long. Fight to own your work so you can own the future.